Good morning. What a privilege it is to be with you this morning, and as we contemplate just a few moments on the cross, come to my mind the words that I'll never forget hearing the King's Herald sing so beautifully. Just to think of the cross moves me now. His nail-pierced hands, his bleeding brow. Just to think of the cross moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. And yet, I am free. I am free. Gracious Father, through your cross, through your love, through your grace, through your sacrifice and through your blood, we can be free. Help us to be so bold as to say that we are free in you. And we ask that you will be our instructor this morning because you indeed showed what it means to carry the cross. We thank you for your presence and pray that individuals and people will fade into insignificance, but that Jesus will be glorified. We ask in his name. Amen. The explosion was deafening. It came unexpectedly and out of the blue, although in warfare situations one expects to hear explosions. And I felt as if I were in a tumble dryer. I've never been in one. But I can only imagine, as I flew 100 feet, 30 meters through the air and landed on my haunches, albeit that the world around me was now no longer in focus because I have been fairly dependent on my refracted need of spectacles ever since about the age of 11. And in that process, they had been blown off my face. And as I started to take in the scene around me, I realized that I had been in a landmine explosion. I looked at my hand, and it was bleeding. A portion of the tip of my right index finger had been amputated. And I looked at this, and I thought to myself, before I even took the scene in completely and fully, I had an anger which welled up in my heart, and I said, Lord, my right hand, the hand that is committed to working for you, the hand that would hopefully continue to do surgery. Father, why? And as the dust began to settle and I looked around and I was in this self-pitting reverie, I looked over and saw my driver, a young man who was shattered. Bilateral fem femoral fractures, bilateral tib-fib fractures, fractured base of skull. And I immediately was overwhelmed with the need to confess my 
selfish introspection and ask God's forgiveness and thank Him for His saving grace in my own life. And got to work immediately. He was unconscious. And as I started to straighten and to do things with Him, because it was way out in the middle of the boonies, I had gone that particular Sabbath, in fact, to see a very sick patient. It was in the operational area in Namibia on the border of Angola. And I'd promised to go back and see a very sick infant way back in the rural areas. And despite counsel not to do that, a small group of us with two vehicles and minesweepers had gone along to see the patient. And on the way back, this had taken place. But there I looked at this young man and started to work on him and with him. And some of the medics arrived. And one of the first things they said to me was, Doc, have you prayed with him? Many evenings in my tent in the operational area, the medics would come in and we would have Bible studies together. Some of those discussions were pivotal and related around the fact that as a Seventh-day Adventist, I didn't carry arms. As a Seventh-day Adventist, we didn't do certain things on Sabbath. But as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we were willing to carry the cross. And so their first opening gambit was, have you prayed with him? And in fact, we'd had that opportunity. It was a brief opportunity where he surfaced amidst the trauma of his shocked brain. I was able to pray with him. I was able to lead him to the cross. He lapsed into coma and died 11 days later. One of the most salutary experiences in life is to witness and be part of what may be termed by many survivor guilt. Why should it be that one be spared and another not? And that became so clear to me when I faced his parents. I was recovering from my third surgery to my hand. You know, this is a deformed hand in the eyes of some, but I find it a very beautiful hand because it reminds me that I've been saved to serve. And as I looked into the face of his parents, I could read as if it was clearly written in letters that were legible, why him and not you? And that also wrote indelibly into my mind and into my heart the fact that I am not my own and I would posit to you today that nor are you. We have been saved to serve. We have been saved with a purpose. We have been given purpose. We have been given opportunity. And we have that as a witness to those around us and those who we serve. Having worked with him, the young man, my driver, we were evacuated to the nearest field hospital. After the immediate first aid surgeries for both of us had been done, I was able to call my mother. And as I called her, 
She said to me, she said, you've been in an accident. I said, that's amazing. The military's already let you know that? She said, no, they didn't. But at a quarter to one today, I was compelled to my knees to pray for you. The landmines detonated at a quarter of one that Saturday. I then called my wife, who was in the mission area where we had been working before I was conscripted to go up for military service, and told her what had happened, and she said, you know, at directly after the service today, there was a potluck, and the saint said, I think before we eat, we need to pray for Peter. It was also a quarter of one on that Sabbath afternoon. And I realized that as we carry our cross, we cannot carry it alone. We are dependent on the prayers of those who love us. And I'm so interested as I listened last night to the excellent introduction to our meetings this week on the fast principle and the cross. Luke, in chapter 22... If you look at the Gospels, and they were brought out so beautifully yesterday, uh, when you look into it, sorry, in chapter 9, where Jesus writes and uh, speaks and it's written and recorded, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must do what? Deny himself and do what? Take up his cross. But interestingly, Luke is the only one who goes a step further. The other Gospels say, deny himself and take up his cross. Luke, the physician, adds a word which I think is very, very significant. What is that word? Daily. Take up the cross daily. It's not a one-time taking up the cross. It's daily taking up the cross. And... As I share with you what I was requested to share with you, and which is a joy for me to share with you, I want you to understand and know that to God be the glory, and to Him alone. And this is a process which is done on a daily basis, a renewed basis, a basis which is refreshed on a daily basis. Take up the cross daily. It all started with a letter. That letter arrived as many others had come in the past. It was a stark brown envelope. One of those typical letters, those of you who may have received from the military, I don't know what it's like here, but in the country where I grew up, it was a stark brown envelope. And I would get one each year saying, we're reminding you that you are due to do military service. But because you are studying, we will wait for you to finish your course and then you will come in as a medical officer and do a year of national service. And year after year, the letter would arrive. Until we'd started our time in mission service and the letter arrived yet again. 
And the letter stated you will serve for 12 months and you need to move on and get things sorted out and do that. And that's what I did. And having arrived at boot camp, two things were made very clear. Number one, this is seven days a week. Number two, everyone carries weapons. And so it was an interesting saga that started. A saga which reminded me in a fresh way every day of what it means to take up your cross daily. Because as my Jewish colleagues, and there were many of them in the boot camp for physicians, would be taken each Sabbath morning to the synagogue where they could worship. The Seventh-day Adventist was left in the barracks because, you see, it wasn't recognized that that was a day of rest for Christians. And then came the next test, and that was the carrying of weapons. And there were all kinds of threats that were placed and saying, well, if you don't carry a weapon, you will not get your commission. And I would say, well, if that's the case, so it will be. You will be the only physician in the, in the medical corps who will not have officers standing. And I had to say that will be how it will be. And then they said you have to do a special driving license to get your, your officer's commission. I said, I'm happy to do that. The test will be Saturday morning. I said, I can't do that. Can't you get your priest to write a letter for you? Can't you get a special dispensation to do this on your Sabbath? No, not my Sabbath, God's Sabbath. Well, in which case, again, you will be the only non-commissioned physician in the medical service. By now, I was getting the answer, used to saying it, so be it. And so it went on from test after test. And the one on the driving license was a very interesting one because it went right to the brink of the closing of the need for that test to be done. And the test was going to be done on the Sabbath morning. And they were saying to me, unless you present yourself on Saturday morning, you will not be commissioned. 3.30, Friday afternoon. Along arrived a very ruddy, overweight, big sergeant major. He said, I have orders for you. He said, you've got to come and do your driving test now. I was amused. I was also a little bit relieved. Till this day, I don't know why they changed their mind. It was the only test done on that day, and it was me who participated in that test. And then came the next test. It was one of those... Day to day, let's see what the challenge for Landless and the Adventists will be now. And we were doing our marching exercises, getting ready for the passing out parade, but there had been a very firm instruction that those who did not carry a weapon would not participate in the commissioning parade. 
you would practice, but you wouldn't be commissioned, or wouldn't participate. And it was probably just a week or four days prior to the actual parade when the commanding officer of the training camp for the South African Medical Services, a very typical kind of permanent force officer, was standing and looking at his terrain and everything that was under his control. Because he would say to this man, go, and he would run. And that man, come, and he would also run. And my squad happened to march past him. And he sent someone to call me out. He said, where did you learn to march? Now, of course, you know, if you've had much to do with military people, they have a different kind of sense of humor. So I wasn't quite sure where this was leading. He said, where did you learn to march? I nearly said to him, do you need to learn to march? It's kind of walking in a smart way, isn't it? I love to think of the way George Bush one day was criticized because people said to him, he said, people say I swagger. He said, I don't swagger. He said, that's the way we walk in Texas. <laughs> and marching was the way smart people walk when they're in the military. I told him I'd led the brass band in the school and uh, he said, well, you march better than any of your colleagues do. Will you be participating in the passing out parade? I said, no, I've been given instructions that I may not because I will not carry a weapon. We, he then quizzed me again as to why that was the case, and I told him why. He said, well, I'm changing the instruction. You will participate even without a weapon. The Lord encourages us to test him for his faithfulness. He is faithful. He has promised. He will be there. And you know, it really is not that much of a deal as to whether one participates in a passing out parade or not. But where the deal really is, is how we reflect the God we love, the God who loves us and who died on the cross for me. After all of those events and being posted out to places of service which have been most amazing, just prior to leaving the boot camp, some really interesting news arrived which said, for those in this intake, instead of serving 12 months, they will serve 24 months. The Lord and I have often had conversations, <laughs> not all of which I'm proud of. But this is one of those where I, I really questioned and said, Lord, what are you thinking? There's a mission practice waiting. There is work to be done. Can I spend another 12 months in this setup? 
And interestingly, as I was walking along, pondering these imponderables, I saw a coffin on a gun carriage going by. A young physician who'd been killed in the conflict. And I suddenly realized that every day is far too precious to wish away. So whether it was 12 months, 15 months, 24 months, each day need, needed to be lived to the maximum for his glory. And that served me well because during that time and just before I went up into the, into the operational area where I was blown up in the landmines, I received word shortly after being in the operational area, that my mother had contracted cancer. She was due to have surgery. And I went and asked for permission because there was a thing called compassionate leave. Uh, if it were possible to go back and be with her just for the time of the surgery, and that was not granted. And as I walked across the campground, in the operational area. I almost said with my hand in my pocket, but officers don't do that. I did kick a few stones as I was deep in thought and wrestling with God and saying, why can't I even get the opportunity to get to be with my mother? And suddenly, as if it were a bolt of lightning that illuminated my mind, came to mind the text Blessed are they who believe, who have not seen. The Lord impressed me. I didn't need to be with my mother for her surgery because he was going to be with her. Taking up the cross is a daily thing. It is an exercise which affects every aspect of our living our family, our patient care, our interactions, our teaching, our sharing, everything. So many things happened. So many things developed. And then came the next letter. I'd already finished my time in the army, I thought, and was back in the mission clinic, loving every moment of it, and along came another stark brown envelope. And I actually quite quickly, I almost fumbled as I, as I ripped it open to see what was inside it. And inside it was the following letter. You have been awarded, an, awarded under the hand of the state president the Southern Cross Medal for excellent service and particular devotion to duty. And I thought to myself, to God, be the glory. Because it was the first time that that medal had ever been awarded to a national service officer. 
It was a medal that was reserved for senior officers in the permanent force. It was interesting to hear the conversation subsequently which took place between the Surgeon General and the commanding officer of my battalion because the name Seventh-day Adventist came up on numerous occasions. That letter was followed by a phone call from the colonel of the, of the regiment who said, we are delighted that this has happened. We want to invite you and your family to the medal presentation. Um, there will be a special function, dinner, and uh, you can bring as many guests as you wish. And it will take place on Saturday at midday. <laughs> and I wondered what it was going to take for them to understand that I didn't have a priest on this earth who I could write to <laughs> to change God's Sabbath and give me permission to do what they were so keen that we should be doing. I said, I'm so sorry. I deeply appreciate your kindness, but I cannot do it. The cordiality changed into a frozen, curt, Final word, in which case, we'll mail it to you. <laughs> to which I answered, in which case, I'll be most grateful. It was about two, three days later that the phone rang again. <laughs> they said, there'll be a medal parade on Friday morning. We would really appreciate if you would come. I said, it would be a delight. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. My mind, and I want, I want to share with you this morning. As we, as professionals, health professionals, People who speak with patients and clients, you know, I have difficulty in getting used to the word clients. They are patients to me. It dates me somewhat, you know. My children tell me time and again that I was born BC, <laughs> which is the truth. It's before computers. <laughs> but we have patients who come and visit us who share with us their inmost needs, their vulnerabilities. They get undressed in front of us, and then they pay us for this whole exercise. What an amazing privilege we have to be invited into those sacred areas of an individual's life. How much is it incumbent on us to have met the risen Savior? as we do that. In my oldest Bible, I have a statement which says the following, no man is fit to go forth and bless the world 
unless they have met the risen Savior. No one is fit to go forth and bless the world unless they have met the risen Savior. And so I want to take you with me to the experience of a young man who came from a very dysfunctional home, a home that was so dysfunctional that there were favorites, there were people who were cared about more than others. There was infighting. In fact, there was the kind of situation of my child, your child, and our child. So many dynamics which influenced the life of this young man. He was highly favored. He was highly intelligent. He was cared for. And his father made no bones as to how much he cared about him. To the extent that he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. So that the world could see that this was the favored son. And you know the story so well of when David went out to Dothan to give food to his brothers who were shepherds. And they saw him coming, the favored one coming. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Let's help him a little bit. Let's get rid of him, the troublemaker. And you know the story so well. How Joseph was stripped of his coat of many colors. How Joseph was thrown into the well. And if you read the story carefully, you'll notice the details of God's being with him. God being with him through the trials. God being with him and saving his life. And it says they threw him in the pit. And interestingly, do you notice the very next words? There's just a very short phrase that says, And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then we read how Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites, taken to Egypt. And Joseph was learning now to take up his cross because he was going to a strange place, a place which he'd heard about but never dreamed of going to. We're told in Patriarchs and Prophets that Joseph, as he looked back from the camels that he was traveling on, he looked back to the home of his father. He wept. But we are told that he purposed in his heart, and it says that his whole soul thrilled with the determination that he was going to stay true to the God of his father. I think so often of Joseph as an antitype of Christ, who was falsely accused, who was tortured and suffered for things that he didn't do wrong, was banished to a strange place that he'd never seen before, but he, his whole soul thrilled with his determination to serve and stay loyal to the God of his father. You know the story so well. He landed up in the house of Potiphar. You know the story of Mrs. Potiphar. You know how Joseph, on a daily basis, 
took up his cross and shed his garment at the appropriate time when he needed to. And my dear colleagues, as we sit in the sanitized environment of an Amen conference, not one of us is above the temptations of Mrs. Potiphar. But Joseph said, how can I do this and sin against who? God. So he lands up in jail. And if you go to Genesis 39, 38, 39, 40, 41, you'll find this phrase repeating frequently. And the Lord was with Joseph. Now I wonder whether Joseph didn't think to himself when he was sitting in the prison and his brothers were at home with the sheep and his father and the comforts of the family, whether maybe it would be time for God to be with them if it was such fun being in the prison, which it wasn't. And we find that Joseph, an antitype of Christ, daily taking up his cross, staying loyal to the God of his father, being seen by those around him as being a man who is filled with the Spirit of God. I so love the story of Joseph. Because when ultimately the butler remembered, the butler's mind was stimulated by the emergency of the Pharaoh's need to have a dream interpreted. Suddenly he remembered his promise to Joseph. I'm going to ask you the question, and this is just an aside. Do you often say to people, do you ever say to people, I'm praying for you? I don't want to see your hands, but I know that you have said this. I'm praying for you. Do we do that? Do we remember to pray for them? Because the butler said, I will remember you, he said to Joseph. But he didn't. And ultimately when he did, and they cleaned up Joseph, shaved him, put him in new clothes, brought him before the Pharaoh, here we find Joseph coming into a situation in front of people who didn't believe in the God that he believed in, who didn't know the God that he loved, who did not know the God of his father, the God in whose soul he was so thrilled to own and to believe in. Here comes Joseph. I'll never forget when I was in my academic part of my career working for an atheist professor, actually a very wonderful man, a man who loved people but didn't tolerate them very well. who would very frequently point out to me and say to me, um, our, our introduction to each other started once I'd gone into cardiology at his invitation, and I didn't, I excused myself from the first grand round, which was on which morning, do you think? Sabbath morning. 
I said to him, I won't be able to be at the Grand Round on Saturday morning. I go to church. He said, that's fine. The, the following week, Monday after the next Saturday, he said, I missed you on Saturday morning. I said, I said to you, I go to church on Saturday. He said, well, that's not really part of the deal here. He said, if you don't come to Saturday morning meetings, you are going to miss the cream of the teaching with all the colleagues from all the surrounding hospitals. And I expect my residents to be there. In which case I said to him, in which case I need to choose another specialty. He said, no, I wouldn't like that. I've invited you into the specialty. We want you to be here, but you are going to be the poorer for this experience. And I determined in my heart that by God's grace, I would not be. And so there was this ongoing interaction between the professor and myself as far as, and he would write on the clinic cards, if you're in trouble on the diagnosis, he would always send me the difficult cases. You can consult with J.C. Or you may ask my opinion. And I actually said to him, I find it offensive for you to take my God so lightly. In fact, I do consult with him over and above your opinion. But I'd like you to respect him for who he is. He apologized. But we had an excellent relationship. He ultimately became my patient. But prior to that, many of you will remember the Waco experience. My professor was a tall, imposing man who'd been a rugby player, who had a nose which attested to that history. <laughs> he would always wear a starched white coat. His name was John Brereton Barlow, after whom Barlow syndrome was named. Came along the corridor of the hospital one day during the Waco time, and he said to me, Landless, I have just been defending you. And I said to him, what have I done wrong that you should need to defend me? We'd already started to develop a good relationship, as you probably can gather. He said, well, I've just been on the Senate of the university's meeting. And they tell me that these clowns in Waco, this, I'm quoting his words, are Seventh-day Adventists. And I told them, those are not Seventh-day Adventists. And they, his colleagues, said to him, since when, John Barlow, did you become an expert on religion and Christianity? <laughs> and he said to them, I know Peter Landon. He is a Seventh-day Adventist. They don't do this. Our opportunity to witness under circumstances are many.
They're not always easy. They're not always fun, but they always turn out to be most rewarding. And so it was with Joseph. When he was called out by Pharaoh, and once he had interpreted the dream, do you remember Pharaoh's description of Joseph? Genesis 42, is there a man such as he who is filled with what? The Spirit of God. And I want to ask you, in the cross-training of this conference, are you, am I, filled with the Spirit of God? Just to think of the cross moves me now. His nail-pierced hands, his bleeding brow. Just to think of the cross moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. And yet, I am free. I am free. Joseph's story continues so beautifully. And I love the humor that God, through his spirit, has allowed to sprinkle his message in his word. You know, after the introduction of Joseph to his brothers, it was, to me, such fun to read those accounts. And when you have a moment, go and read. Genesis 38 through 44, 45. And read it a little critically. And here the brothers come to Joseph and just before he tells them who he is, they say, we are honorable men. What dramatic irony. Here are the honorable men who threw him into a pit, took his cloak, dumped it into animal blood, deceived the old father, and they come and say to him, we are honorable men. And Joseph knew exactly how honorable they were. But once he reveals himself, once they've embraced, once their tears have mingled with each other and drenched their coats and to the, to the sounds that the, the people in the palace of Pharaoh were wondering what was going on here. Joseph bids his brothers to be on their way to go and fetch their father, bring their father, bring the family, Come back, come home and settle. And he says to them, there's a little phrase in Genesis 44 which says, and do not quarrel along the way. Do not quarrel along the way. Have you ever told your children, don't fight now? It's almost like telling them, say to your mother, you're sorry. Did, did your parents ever tell you that? If you didn't, I don't know if you... I, I, my parents would always say, tell your mother you're sorry, and then I would say, I'm sorry. I was as sorry as I was pink with polka dots. Don't quarrel along the way. 
it's such a privilege for me to be with you this weekend. My heart yearns for the health ministries of the church to work together, not to quarrel along the way. We've done it for long enough now. It's time to stop quarreling. It's time to stop quibbling. It's time to move forward. Health ministry is not the monopoly nor the purview of the Department of General Conference Health Ministries, nor is it the only monopoly of the Amen Ministries, nor is it Weimars, nor is it Yuchi Pines, nor is it whatever it may be. It is God's. We are His. And we've been urged not to quarrel along the way. Take up your cross daily. And we at General Conference Health Ministries commit to meaningful collaboration, to be embracing, to be supportive. Not because it's the expedient thing to do, but because it's the right thing to do. So as Joseph speaks to the brothers just before they leave, he urges, do not quarrel along the way. I sometimes wonder as I attend health conferences around the world, as I speak with health professionals, I, I never ever dreamed that I would get to this stage of my life and Jesus had not yet come. My mother would pray, Lord, make him to be a missionary in the four corners of the earth. But I believed that before that would ever happen, he would have come. And as I attend meetings and health meetings and see the tremendous resurgence of interest in health, comprehensive health, blended ministry, I'm excited and in some ways I'm saddened because I see so much disparateness. You know, it reminds me of our older daughter. She was the first grandchild in the family. She was born just before I was up in the operational area and I was delighted to be saved to watch her to grow up into a beautiful young woman. But when she was about two years of age, we went up to visit my mother and uh, we were walking through the most beautiful park of flowers and trees with a lake and we were teaching her, you know, little mother hen said, God made me, God made all my family. And uh, so we were walking along and saying, Bronwyn, who made the beautiful trees? Granny. No, no, no. Not Granny, Jesus. And we would see flowers. Who made the beautiful pansies, Bronwyn? Granny. Not Granny, Jesus. And so we went through this whole park and eventually got to the end of it where she was realizing that if it was something beautiful and nice, God had made it. We went home and uh, she'd been showered with gifts and... Uh, 
She was hardly deprived before we'd been on that visit. And I got home, I would make a point every day, whether I had time to eat or not, I had time to go and see my little girl. And I would dash in and I ran into her room to greet her and to sweep her up in my arms. And there she was sitting with every toy she ever had unpacked all over the place. And one could hardly move. I said, Bronwyn, who made this mess? She said, Jesus. Isn't that how we are sometimes? We find ourselves in a mess of lack of collaboration and we blame him or his word or his divinely inspired prophet. The problem lies with me. The change needs to begin with me. And so when it comes to taking up my cross, and following Jesus as a health professional in every aspect of my life, my interaction with my patients, my interaction with my wife, my family. I'm so thankful my wife was with me. She's my friend, my coach, taught me an amazing lesson, one of the many. One day in that same mission practice, she called me to the phone, and, and it was to a Mrs. So-and-so who would call many, many times and was never sick. And as I went to the phone, I had a few choice grumps to make about why these people have to keep calling me and why they will not learn. And, uh, and then I got to the phone. Yes, Mrs. So-and-so. Yeah, no, certainly, Mrs. So-and-so. Sure. Now, I'll be going up to the hospital at 5.30 this afternoon, and I'll see you there. No, that'll be a pleasure. Thank you. And put the phone down. And my wife was standing there, and she... She's quite amazing. She's very clever. <laughs> she didn't shout at me. She didn't correct me. All she said was, someday, I wish I was Mrs. So-and-so at the other end of the phone. Does your family wish they were Mrs. So-and-so at the other end of the phone? It would be incomplete for us to leave the topic, the adjuring, the command to take up our cross without looking to a litmus test that each one of us can apply individually as to whether we are taking cross. And I would point you to one of my favorite books next to the Bible. It's a little book called Step to Christ. I grew up in this church that I love so much. A church which at times taught me that I shouldn't really be so confident that I had been saved. Both the church and I have grown since that understanding was given to me. But I want you, each one, to apply this test, not to the one next to you, not to the one in front of you, not to the one on the platform, nor the one who's about to speak. 
You see, she tells us that the love of influence and the desire for the esteem of others may produce a well-ordered life. I dare say, as I look around, there are many well-ordered lives here today. A selfish heart may perform generous actions. By what means, then, shall we determine whose side we are on? How do we know? How can we know? She then writes, who has the heart? With whom are our thoughts? Of whom do we love to converse? Who has our warmest affections and our best energies? If we belong to Christ, our thoughts are with him, our sweetest thoughts are of him, all we have and are is consecrated to him. We long to bear his image, breathe his spirit, do his will, and please him in all things. And as we take up our cross, as we follow him, our hearts will burn within us. As we learned yesterday evening, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was revealing these truths to us? And as you go into the rest of your day, each one of us as different as are our faces, so are our needs. I want you to remember he has promised never to leave you never to forsake you. And as you take up your cross daily and follow him, he will strengthen, he will save, and he will comfort each one. Gracious Father, we come to you as we are, but plead with you not to leave us that way. We ask you to take us, for we cannot give ourselves for you. Keep us, for we cannot keep ourselves for you. And to please save us despite ourselves. For we ask it in and through the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whose death on the cross, whose resurrection, whose life, guarantee us eternal life with you but accept in Jesus name we pray Amen. this media was brought to you by audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more if you would like to know more about audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons please visit www.audioverse.org <laughs>